Hello there, Pigskins fans, and welcome to the Week 7 edition of the Stat Pack. I'm your host, Adam Dobrovolsky, and we have plenty to go over over the next half hour or so, looking at six of the biggest headlines from the week that was, a six-pack of the top performers from Week 6, and of course, six big games to look forward to in this upcoming week of football. We'll start things off well with the America's team now, America's stupidest team mantra for the Dallas Cowboys. That's what we'll start things off from the six-pack of headlines from week six. Six big statements that we can take a look at as we break down some of these games with those great cold hard football facts and for the Dallas Cowboys the reason why I say they again reinforced their stupidest team mantra in Sunday's loss to the Baltimore Ravens is because of their inability to score the Cowboys lose 31-29 despite having 10 drives and putting the ball into Ravens territory in nine of those 10 drives. Let's take a look at each of the 10 drives. Late in the first quarter, the Dallas Cowboys got the ball in the Baltimore territory thanks to a nice 28-yard run by DeMarco Murray. He did a fantastic job. He bowled over Jamil McClain, did a nice stiff arm to get past Ed Reed, and it puts the ball in perfect position for the Cowboys. Now, this was a big thing for Dallas throughout the game. The Baltimore defensive line had no penetration whatsoever. They weren't shedding any blocks on the run. The linebackers really weren't able to get a hat on the ball carrier. And because of that, Dallas was able to run for over 200 yards. In fact, it was the worst run defensive performance by the Baltimore Ravens in franchise history when it comes to rushing yards allowed. As a result, the Dallas Cowboys moved up from 26th to 8th on the offensive hog index. But in that first drive, the Dallas Cowboys nearly cost themselves. A holding penalty on Doug Free on the next play, on a nice off-tackle run by Murray, nearly set the Cowboys up in big danger. Luckily, though, Felix Jones bails out the team and has a nice 22-yard touchdown run. The Cowboys wouldn't get as lucky later on in the game. In the next drive for Dallas, they're able just to run the ball right down the Ravens' throat. Eight consecutive run plays all the way down to the Baltimore 12-yard line. Right after that, the Cowboys go incomplete. They go play action, rolling out to the right. No one blocks the Baltimore Blitzer on the right edge. Doug Free blocks the interior defensive lineman. Jason Witten goes on a route. And as Tony Romo rolls out right, he has nothing really he can do except throw the ball incomplete to nobody really much at the feet of Jason Witten. On the next play after that, it's a third down run, and the Cowboys get a first down. However, there's a penalty for illegal shift. Kevin Ogletree doesn't settle. This after Romo audibles to send two players in motion. And then after that, the Cowboys fail on a bubble screen. It's a loss of seven and a fourth down for the Cowboys, and they have to settle for a field goal. The big thing here, Miles Austin couldn't get a block on Jimmy Smith, and it's because, again, the Cowboys roll out on play action, and there's a quick pass rush. 
the Cowboys don't really get to, to set up that play because Romo has to rush his throw, and the Cowboys use, uh, lose seven yards, have to settle for a field goal. On the third drive, the Cowboys again get the ball down the field. Seven consecutive plays for a gain to start off the drive going down to the Baltimore 30-yard line. However, after that, Tyron Smith with a hold. The Cowboys get an incomplete pass. Now, there is a neutral zone infraction. The Cowboys get it to third and ten. However, an interception that is pretty much all to blame on Tony Romo. He waits too long as he rolls out. He could have hit the slot receiver Kevin Ogletree earlier in stride and get a nice gain, at the least a field goal, perhaps a first down. Instead, he waits until he's under pressure, makes an errant throw, and it's interception. The only drive the Cowboys didn't get into Baltimore's territory was the next drive, the fourth for the Cowboys. That was late in the second half. They had one run play, and that was the end of the half. So pretty much they were going to burn that drive no matter what. To start the third quarter, though, the Cowboys get a nice 95-yard gain to Jason Witten. It brings the ball to the Baltimore 31-yard line. However, it's a false start after that. Two gains make it a third and four. Then a misfire from Romo to Austin. It was nice coverage by uh, Jimmy Smith as it looks like Austin decides to go on a go route on the outside shoulder. Instead, Romo throws on the inside shoulder. Must have been a miscommunication between the two. Dallas has to settle for a field goal. Next drive after that, the Cowboys do get a nice touchdown drive. 11 of their 14 plays with a positive gain. Now on to the team's sixth drive. And, well, we'll make it actually their seventh drive. This one results in a punt when the Cowboys get a defensive pass interference to the Baltimore 40. They get two runs to make it a third and five. However, an incomplete pass. This one was a nice job by Baltimore. Good defense by Jimmy Smith on Miles Austin on a go route. The Ravens did get nice pressure. It was probably the first time the Ravens earned a good stop on a Dallas Cowboys drive, but that's now seven drives in, six in Baltimore territory. On the eighth drive, the Cowboys start the drive at the Ravens' 35-yard line. They make four consecutive runs to get it to the 10-yard line. However, an illegal shift puts the Cowboys back five yards. Then on a third and goal from the nine, the Cowboys take a sack. Baltimore goes with a three-man rush. Nobody from the Cowboys able to get open. It's a coverage sack, and the Cowboys settle for a field goal. On the ninth drive, the Cowboys are able to get a touchdown but miss the two to tie it. But think about this. Credit Tony Romo for the comeback here. The Cowboys in this drive had two false start penalties, one chop block, one holding penalty. The Cowboys had to convert two fourth and tens, one to uh, Jason Witten on a, a nice out route, and then the next one, Witten was wide open. Nobody covered him. Tony Romo actually nearly uh, misfired the ball on a good job by Witten to, as he's falling, catch the ball with his fingertips. Cowboys down two as they can't convert the two-point conversion, but the Cowboys get a nice onside kick recovery. They get... Uh, defensive pass interference to put the ball in the Baltimore territory with 26 seconds. What happens? Well, Jason Garrett, the worst time management gaffe of the season so far. The Cowboys go a quick slant. It's a two-yard gain. 
They can't run another play. They wait until six seconds to get the timeout. They, they don't call a timeout early with 20 to 15 seconds left so the Cowboys can run another play. They don't even call a timeout with 10 seconds left to try perhaps a, a throw to the sidelines. Instead, they wait to six seconds, settle for a 51-yard field goal. Dan Bailey misses it, and the Cowboys lose 31-29. Again, nine of their ten drives in Baltimore territory, and really all nine of their drives where they're making an effort to score, they get into Baltimore territory, and they can only muster 29 points. We broke it down drive by drive. Looking at, at uh, uh, the, the tape of this game, the Cowboys throughout most of the game were able to attack the Ravens uh, through the the trenches. Really at the point of attack, they were able to push back the Ravens, but they just couldn't get the job done because they're America's stupidest team, and there's no surprise they're ranked 30th in scorability through six weeks. Second uh, on this list of headlines, we'll look at Alex Smith and his struggles as of the the Giants game, I think this might be just the beginning for Alex Smith. And hear me out. I understand last year he only had five interceptions and entering this game against the Giants, just one interception. So he had just six interceptions in 21 games from 2011 to 2012. And actually, Alex Smith did a good job towards the end of 2010. So nearly, I think it's somewhere around a year and a half, he's had only six interceptions. But there is some regression to be had for Alex Smith. No quarterback in NFL history has had back-to-back seasons as a full-time starter with five interceptions or fewer. So Smith, he's pretty much at this point in a situation where he might be due for regression. He struggled a lot against these Giants. His interception to Delaney Walker was in double coverage and kind of uh, a floating duck. And it was the turning point of the game when the 49ers were up 3 nothing. The Giants instead, off the interception, drive down for a touchdown and led pretty much after that with 26 unanswered points. On the next drive, after that interception, Smith took a big sack on a third and four. It was just some shoddy pocket awareness on where Jason Pierre-Paul was. Smith's got to do a better job on that. Look now to the second half, where the Giants are now up 17-3, and Smith's second interception was a double-clutch, flat-footed, high throw. Now, give Antrell Roll credit He had some nice ball skills. He actually had to turn around to make the interception because the throw was so bad. But nonetheless, Smith had no chance to make that completion. The throw shouldn't have gone to the receiver. Instead, it's an interception. Then on the drive right after that, after Smith takes a sack on second and four, he throws another interception to Antrell Roll, this time in double coverage. And Roll pretty much just shadowing his side of the field. As soon as Alex Smith looks to the receiver, Roll steps up and it's a throw in double coverage. And then finally, in the fourth quarter, down 23-3, to Smith on the same series mishandles a snap throws an incomplete pass, and then gets sacked for a negative 14-yard uh, play. And all he did was roll out right into Matthias Kiwanuka. Alex Smith struggled against these Giants, needless to say, did not put together his best effort. But look at what's coming up next for the San Francisco 49ers over their next seven games. Obviously, the Thursday night game this week against the Seattle Seahawks. 
The Seahawks are 6th in defensive pass rating, ninth in defensive hog index. The Arizona Cardinals after that, the battle in Arizona. The Cardinals, 3rd in defensive pass rating, 5th in de- defensive hog index. There's a pair of games against the Rams, who are 5th in defensive pa- uh, pass rating and 6th in defensive hog index. The Chicago Bears go to San Francisco about a month from now. They are tops in the league in DPR and DHI. And then you look at the Miami Dolphins, who are 8th in defensive pass rating and 2nd in defensive hog index. The only easy team defensively the 49ers have over the next 7 weeks are the New Orleans Saints. That battles in New Orleans. It's a rematch of the divisional round game where the Saints lost to the 49ers. So that might not be the easiest thing for the 49ers either. But you look at it, six of the next seven games against teams that are in the top 10 in both defensive pass rating and defensive hog index. Of the first six opponents, none of them were in top 10 in both categories. And in fact, the, the closest thing to it, the Packers, eighth in defensive hog index, the Jets were fourth in defensive pass rating. The Giants were seventh in defensive hog index. You look at it, obviously a great game by Smith uh, against the Packers, though against the Giants, not so much. So I think Alex Smith is due for some struggles over the next two months, and this will be the test ultimately for Alex Smith. If he can survive these next seven games and the 49ers can go 5-2 and two out of this and improve to 9-4, and four, I think they're a Super Bowl team. But given these challenges and Smith not being proven just yet, this might actually be a time where the 49ers move out of playoff positioning, especially if the Seahawks can win on the road in San Francisco this Thursday night. Next up now, well, third on our six-pack of headlines, and that's the Atlanta Falcons. And I'm going to say this. I have them right now on the top of my rankings as an undefeated team, but I do think they're the same old team that they were years before, and I don't think they're just ready yet for a Super Bowl championship. Look at this for the Atlanta Falcons. You have a Week 2 win at home against Denver, a 3-3 team by 6 points. That kind of foreshadowed the way these last three games have gone. Two-point home win against the 1-4 Panthers. A seven-point road win against the 3-3 three three Redskins. And a three-point home victory against the 1-4 Raiders. You have to find a way to dominate these inferior opponents or at the least get a multiple-possession victory. Four single-possession victories against non-quality opponents. That's worrisome for the Atlanta Falcons. And oh yeah, Matt Ryan, 0-3 playoff record. I want to let you know and I'll give you the list of it, the quarterbacks who didn't win a playoff game coming into their Super Bowl run. These are the quarterbacks that did not have a single playoff victory the year before their Super Bowl run. Joe Namath, Roger Staubach, Jim Plunkett, Joe Montana, Joe Theismann, Jim McMahon, Jeff Hostetler, Troy Aikman, Kurt Warner, Tom Brady, Eli Manning, and Aaron Rodgers. Now, obviously, that is an illustrious, illustrious list of quarterbacks, and it's quite a long list. So you think, okay, Matt Ryan at 0-3 in the playoffs, there's still a chance for him to get this ball rolling. Well, how about this? If all those quarterbacks I named, and by a quick count, I believe that's 12 quarterbacks, only two of them had played a playoff game previous, or I should say started a playoff game previous. 
Eli Manning, 0-2 in his first two starts. Aaron Rodgers, 0-1 in his first start. So it took all the way to Super Bowl 42 for a quarterback who had played a playoff game, had started a playoff game, and didn't win any of those starts to then make a Super Bowl run. Does it seem right now that the Falcons might need this year to actually win a playoff game and then maybe set themselves up for a Super Bowl run next year? I'm going to make that argument. I don't think the Atlanta Falcons are ready. And Matt Ryan against the Raiders, a team that entered the game dead last in defensive pass rating without an interception all season. Matt Ryan throws three interceptions against him. And... Look at who Matt Ryan's played so far in defensive passer rating. And a quick list, we'll do it right now. The Chiefs were 31st, the Broncos 16th, the Chargers 23rd, the Panthers are 19th. Then you look at last week's opponent against the Redskins 22nd, and then finally the Oakland Raiders at 28th. I say this, the Falcons are a good bet to lose in Philadelphia off their bye. The Eagles are ranked 2nd. And defensive pass rating, and I do have a note on the Eagles coming up, but Andy Reid undefeated off the bye for all that's going wrong with Philadelphia. I think the one thing the Eagles are good for is getting a win coming off their bye, but at, really, Matt Ryan did not look good at all against the Raiders. His three interceptions were bad throws. He forced a path, uh, pass on an underneath cross route for the first interception. He threw in a triple coverage on a deep throw to Julio Jones for the second interception. And then as he's getting clobbered, instead of taking a sack, he tries to throw a ball to Tony Gonzalez. And the pass is nowhere near Gonzalez. Instead, it goes to a linebacker. It was a nice inside linebacker blitz by the Raiders that Matt Ryan just needs to eat. Moving on now to the fourth on this list. And it's Andy Reid. And I just did mention a good thing about him coming off the bye, but I actually think it's time for Andy Reid to go. How on earth can you make your defensive coordinator, Luis Castillo, the scapegoat when the Eagles are second in defensive passer rating? They're fourth in defensive real quarterback rating. They're tenth in defensive real passing yards per attempt. They're 13th in bendability. And this, albeit 16th in defensive hog index, you would think that the Y9s are a big reason for this defense doing a great job. It's not really so. Right now, the Y9s is pretty much a, a mediocre thing at right at this point right now in the NFL. It's been all on that secondary, all on a good job defensively by Luis Castillo. And he gets fired when you look at it offensively, the horrible misuse of Michael Vick, LaShawn McCoy, Deshaun Jackson, Jeremy Macklin, you look at the team's horrible inefficiency, they're dead last in scoreability. Some of the horrible plays in this overtime loss to the Lions on Sunday. Yes, the Eagles blew a 23-13 lead, but it comes down to silly offensive plays by the Eagles, putting them in position to not put that game away to begin with. How about a 14-yard loss in the first quarter on an end-around to Deshaun Jackson where he has no presence of Cliff Averill being unblocked on an end-around? Why would you give the ball to Deshaun Jackson in a situation where he doesn't have that awareness? Get him down the field, try and throw the ball deep to Deshaun Jackson. Meanwhile, you have a stupid fumble loss by the Eagles. 
Now, a lot of people blame the center because Michael Vick wasn't looking on this fumble. But as you take a look at the replay and you look at the coach's tape, you can see Michael Vick motioning the receiver with his hands, and he makes a stutter step with his foot. Well, that usually indicates a hike to the center who's looking back. He sees the foot kind of just step to the side a little bit to indicate hike. That's why the center snapped the ball. Michael Vick wasn't looking. Vick has to do a better job there as well. Then there was a stupid shovel play in a third and one that went for a three-yard loss. There were already players in the backfield. There was already back-end pursuit, and they try a, a shovel pass to LaShawn McCoy. Why isn't this team setting up screen plays for McCoy? McCoy, obviously a great player in the open field, but this is an offensive line that's struggling. Well, if the offensive line is struggling and teams are trying to blitz Michael Vick, Yes, Vic has struggled with his, his touch passes on screen passes, but at least try it here because then you can get the offensive line in the open field. They're good, fast-moving offensive lines. That's the, the staple under Howard Mudd. And then you can get that offensive line in front of the secondary, and they will be able to block those guys. It Just to me, it it just baffles me. You have three seconds left in the first half of the Detroit 43-yard line. They don't try a field goal. Instead of going for a 61-yarder to Alex Henry, they go with a, a, a Hail Mary, which doesn't work out. Then Brent Selleck making big mistakes. One drop in the end zone. That drive results in a field goal. Then an offensive pass interference, albeit chippy, that drive ends in a field goal. And how about this? After that offensive pass interference to Brent Selleck, what do the Eagles run? A smoke route to Clay Harbor, and then they take a sack. That's offensive inefficiency at its best. And then finally, on a four-minute drill, the Eagles go three and out thanks to a swap by a Detroit defensive lineman on third and four. Well, here's the thing. Jeremy Macklin is wide open on a shallow cross. How about Michael Vick use some touch to get the ball over the defensive line instead of trying to throw a bullet? right through that D-line. It gets swatted down rather easily. And the Eagles, instead of getting the first down and perhaps running out the clock to victory, they give the ball back to Detroit. The Lions tied up. And then finally in overtime, this is the most baffling thing. The Eagles decide to pass on the first two plays of overtime, given all their offensive line struggles, given how long Michael Vick is in the backfield trying to make a play, and he's taking sacks. Instead of using LaShawn McCoy, they go back-to-back pass plays. It goes two sacks for minus 21 yards. Then on third down, with a big cushion, the Eagles don't run a simple curl route. They try and go deep with all their receivers. Michael Vick throws it away. It's a fourth and 21. The Eagles punt within their own 10. It gave the Lions perfect field goal position for the victory. This is all on Andy Reid and firing Luis Castillo is an absolute joke. And I think for that alone, Andy Reid needs to be fired. Fifth on this list is in Seattle, and it's about Richard Sherman. And he criticized Tom Brady, claiming the Patriots had a gimmick offense. You know what? I think he's right. Let's take a look at some of the factors here for the New England Patriots against the Seahawks in the Seahawks' 24-23 comeback victory. The Patriots ran 86 plays, yet held the ball for only 34 minutes. The Seahawks ran 57 plays, held the ball for 26 minutes. On average, the Patriots, per play, held the ball three seconds fewer per play. 
This is a Patriots team that held the lead for in excess of 43 minutes, yet Tom Brady throws 58 passes. This is a team for New England that's up pretty much the entire second half, yet they're still running no huddle. They had, on 15 plays in the third quarter with the clock running, they went for a combined 34 seconds per play. On 10 such plays, while the Patriots had a lead in the fourth quarter, they averaged just over 36 seconds per play. Why aren't the Patriots running out the full 40? In fact, by my calculation, the Patriots gave up probably a bit more than two minutes to the Seahawks in the second half of clock. Well, the Seahawks scored their game-winning touchdown with a minute 18 left. The Patriots, by this this fast-paced gimmick offense that doesn't really have the wherewithal to slow the game down, they gave the ball... They gave the game right back to the Seahawks. The Seahawks were down. You need to slow the game down. You need to give them fewer opportunities. You can't keep the game at a fast pace and give them more opportunities to come back. And that's why I think it's a bit of a gimmick. It looked at times like the Oregon Ducks offense. If you're going and looking like a college offense, you're a gimmick. I'll give this to the defense of Tom Brady. There were a lot of Bad plays defensively. The Patriots' deep coverage was absolutely horrible. Yes, Russell Wilson made some great throws. He actually had a fantastic rollout and a 50-yard throw to Doug Baldwin to help set up the first touchdown drive. But you look at it, Russell Wilson can be had. I'm actually surprised at this point right now that teams aren't using edge blitzers to attack Wilson and keep him in the pocket. He's a smaller guy. You don't want him to roll out. But nonetheless, I look at this game, and I I am still baffled how the Patriots lost when they controlled the game in the second half, especially in the third quarter where the Seahawks had virtually no offense in the third quarter. This is a time that a team that is balanced, that has its true bearings and isn't a gimmick, This is where teams take over the game and slam the door shut and dominate on the road. The Patriots didn't do that. They fed right into the Seattle Seahawks, and that's why the Seahawks got the upset over New England. And finally, the last one of the six-pack, we saved the uh, worst for last here. That's Phillip Rivers. I have never seen a worst second-half collapse I have never seen this. Think about this. As Captain Comeback mentioned in his uh, article this week, how the Broncos became one of the few teams to make a 24-point comeback or better. None of the teams that made those comebacks until now won by multiple possessions. This is the first time in NFL history a team that had a 24-point lead or better lost by more than eight points. So the San Diego Chargers must have done something really bad in the second half. Let's do a quick breakdown of each of the Chargers' drives in the second half. Began things off with Rivers losing a fumble in Denver territory. This was a turning point of the game, I thought. It was an empty-handed fumble. Phillip Rivers is going for a throw, but he's under a lot of duress, and he's falling backwards trying to make a throw. Look, Phillip, you're up by 17 at this point. Take the sack. Or try to at least elude the rusher and throw the ball out of bounds. 
set your team up at least for a field goal and make it a 20-point lead and not give the Broncos an opportunity for a defensive touchdown, which happened, and it makes it 24-14. After that, the Chargers go three and out. They take a sack on third down. It's a coverage sack, not too much of a fall on Phillip Rivers. After a touchdown makes it 24-21, Rivers throws an interception. He underthrows a deep route. There was a nice pocket. Rivers had the chance to step up to it. you got to make those throws. You can't make an interception. Instead, the Broncos get the ball back. They take the lead up 28-24. Next drive, Rivers throws a pick six. Or no, not a pick six just yet, but he throws an interception to Chris Harris. On a bump and run, Eddie Royal gets thrown off his route. Rivers didn't see it. Nice pick by Chris Harris. The next drive is a pick six to Harris. He does a great job of jumping the route, but this is on Phillip Rivers as well. It's a quick out to Eddie Royal, and he throws behind Royal. That's pretty easy pickings there for Chris Harris. And then finally on the last drive, Rivers takes a sack from Elvis Dumerville, loses a football. It's a fumble lost, and Rivers just had no awareness of the edge pressure and Dumerville collapsing the pocket. And that's your second half. It was absolutely horrible to watch. And I think the Chargers are, again, proven to be frauds. They've beaten up three cupcakes this year. Teams that are 28th, 31st, and 32nd in the quality stats power rankings. Really not a respectable win to their name. And at 3-3, three and three, uh, they might be due for a long final 10 games after their bye if Phillip Rivers can't wake things up. Now let's take a look quickly at a six-pack of top performers from Week 6. We'll start things off. First off with Peyton Manning and a historical comeback for him. It's a new NFL record, 37 fourth-quarter comebacks. Peyton was absolutely stellar in the second half after the team was down 24-0. And how about this? Shh, don't tell anyone right now, but the Broncos are ranked second in offensive passer rating this season. Number two on my list, I got to give credit to Russell Wilson. A great comeback, down 13 in the fourth quarter against New England. Wilson averaging nearly 11 yards per attempt, a passer rating over 130. He had six completions of 20 yards or more, and it was the third best comeback against the Bill Belichick coached New England Patriots. Third on the list, well, it's the third. Robert Griffin III, and he was fantastic against Minnesota, a team that entered the game ranked 11th in defensive real quarterback rating, but RG3 rips him up, 17 completions on 22 attempts, 182 yards, a touchdown and interception. Meanwhile, 13 rushes, 138 yards, two touchdowns. He took only one sack for four yards. It's a good QBR, 119.44. Fourth on the list, Aaron Rodgers against the Houston Texans, a team ranked second in defensive passer rating. Rodgers only goes with an offensive passer rating of 133.79, just a bit better than Russell Wilson. 24 completions on 37 attempts, 338 yards, six touchdowns, zero interceptions. Fifth on the list, a man I already mentioned, Chris Harris, a defensive key for the Broncos. Two interceptions, including a pick six. And uh, just really, those big plays were huge for the Broncos. It made that comeback a lot easier. But Harris, at the end, on two occasions, beating out Phillip Rivers 
and Eddie Royal. And finally, well, it's not one single player. We're going to give it to a group of offensive hogs, and that's the New York Jets. The Jets get 252 yards rushing. They were sacked only once for six yards. And, oh, yeah, the Jets were 6 of 12 on third down. So a great job by the offensive hogs and a blowout win for the Jets over the Indianapolis Colts. Up now, a six-pack of the top teams in the NFL through Week 6. Number one on my list, I mentioned it a bit earlier, the Atlanta Falcons, but really by a little bit ahead of the Houston Texans and Chicago Bears. I think right now at this point it probably goes through a virtue of being undefeated. They are third in the quality stats power rankings. Second on my list, the Houston Texans. Yes, they were blown out at home against the Green Bay Packers, but the Packers also blew out the Chicago Bears. So I can't hold that too much against the Houston Texans. The Packers have the two most impressive wins in the NFL this season by far. And oh yeah, the Texans are ranked fourth in the quality stats power rankings. Third on my list, the Chicago Bears. The Bears, the top team in the quality stats power rankings. They're third on my list just because, well, I need to see them get a marquee victory. Their wins are over the Colts, the Rams, the Cowboys, and the Jaguars. Facing off against the Lions Monday, not exactly your marquee victory just yet, but we'll see what happens if the Texans lose another game. Maybe the Bears move up to second place. Fourth on the list, Surprisingly so after being blown out by the Giants, but it's the San Francisco 49ers, a team that fell to eighth in the quality stats power rankings. The reason why I have them fourth, well, they've played a good schedule so far. They've faced some tough opponents, and, well, it's going to get tougher, as I mentioned, and we'll see what happens to them moving forward. Fifth on my list, the Baltimore Ravens, a team that's 5-1, and one, one of two teams in the AFC over 500 at this point, so I give them a shout-out for that. They're ranked 7th in the quality stats power rankings. And number 6, the Green Bay Packers. Yes, they're 3-3. Three and three. Yes, they've lost to two rookie quarterbacks, but as mentioned, they have the two most impressive victories this season, blowing out the Texans, blowing out the Bears, and they faced a very tough schedule. And oh yeah, they're 5th in the quality stats power rankings. So that, Rounds out my top six. And finally, we look at a six-pack of games for week seven. Let's start things off with the Green Bay Packers at the St. Louis Rams. And this is a very tough spot for the Packers. Fresh off a big road win in Houston. Is this going to be a letdown game against a very respectable Rams team? This is a Rams team with a great front seven. The Packers heading into that game against the Texans were struggling immensely with its pass protection. The Rams a respectable 13th in the quality stats power rankings. The Packers on the road, they're ranked 5th. I'm interested to see what happens with Aaron Rodgers going up against this Rams defense right after blowing out those Houston Texans. And we don't know exactly what we'll get from Houston moving forward. There was some regression to be had for them, and Brian Cushing was out. Fifth on this list, well, it's a classic AFC East battle. The New York Jets, 20th in the power rankings. At the New England Patriots, 15th in the power rankings. I, I just like this rivalry. I think that's why it makes the list. Number four, a tough cross-country matchup for the Arizona Cardinals, who are 14th in the power rankings, facing off against the Minnesota Vikings, who are ninth 
and the power rankings. Both of these teams aren't expected to be 4-2. and two. Well, one of them is going to be 5-2. and two. And The question is, who will it be? Christian Ponder, who's been playing very efficient football. Percy Harvin's been lights out, returning balls, catching balls, running balls. Adrian Peterson is in tip-top shape just about at this point. Very near to 100%. Less than a year removed from his torn ACL. Can the Vikings get the job done against that top-tier defense and the Arizona Cardinals? Or will the Cardinals have some jet lag in an early game halfway across the country? The fourth one on my list, it's the Washington Redskins at the New York Giants. RG3 and the 11th-ranked Redskins in the quality stats power rankings going up against the second-ranked Giants, a team that just missed my top sixth. They're actually seventh on my list. The Giants playing some good football. Finally got a stiff challenge in facing the 49ers and blew them out on the road. Will there be a letdown for a Giants team that was swept by the Redskins last year? And, oh yeah, at home against the Redskins last year in Week 15, fresh off a huge road victory for the Giants, they came out flat and were handled quite easily by the Redskins. I'm interested to see what happens in this one, but it could be ugly. The Giants have arguably the best offensive hogs in the league, and the Washington defense, not so good at this point. Meanwhile, I look at the second-best matchup in the six-pack, the Seattle Seahawks at the San Francisco 49ers on Thursday night. The Seahawks 10th in the power rankings, the 49ers 8th. Boy, this is going to be a great Nice defensive slugfest. Russell Wilson has been struggling to get the ball down the field until Sunday against the Patriots. Can he keep that momentum going? Can the Seahawks get a road upset against the 49ers? The Seahawks 1-2 this year on the road. And then the 49ers fresh off that whopping defeat against the Giants, a team that the 49ers are 0-2 against quality opponents, and Alex Smith has four interceptions in those two losses. Facing off against a top-10 defense, can he get the job done? Really, both quarterbacks, I think, have a lot to prove. And finally, obviously, it's the game of the week. The Baltimore Ravens, 5-1, seventh in the power rankings at the Houston Texans, 5-1, fourth in the power rankings the only two teams with a winning record at this point in the AFC Baltimore has been struggling with its run defense in the last two games they're getting really pushed back at the point of attack the defensive line might even be worse now that Holodinata got injured last week against Dallas can they find a way to stop Arian Foster in the Houston Texans well the Green Bay Packers did it and they did it with Charles Woodson playing some outside linebacker. It'll be interesting to see what the Ravens can do without Ladarius Webb, without Ray Lewis, and not sure if they'll be without Holodi Nada, but it will be a tough thing against Houston. As for the Texans, well, what's to come of their defense? Second game without Brian Cushing going up against the Ravens offense that is doing quite a good job with Joe Flacco, and obviously Ray Rice is a huge factor The winner of this game has, by and far, the inside track for the top seed in the AFC. I did have the Houston Texans winning the AFC, so this will be a big game for the Texans to prove that. Well, that does it for this edition 
of the Stat Pack. Until next week, Pigskins fans, make sure to enjoy a fantastic Week 7.